Good morning, church. Kids up through fifth grade are dismissed to head to your classrooms right now. For the rest of us, let's turn in our Bibles to the book of Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2 will be in verses 4 to 7 this morning. And uh, as the kids are heading out, just want to pray a blessing over them that the Lord would uh, shape their uh, heads and hearts and hands with the truth of uh, the knowledge of Jesus Christ, and that He would do the same for us this morning. Last week, we uh, talked a little bit about, not a little bit, we talked a lot about the bad news, that the bad news is really bad. Uh, If you missed that sermon, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to it uh, this week on the website or the podcast. But what we said is that we can't truly understand the good news of the gospel if we first don't understand the bad news of our life apart from Christ. We saw that before Christ, the world was our example, the devil was our boss, our flesh liked it, and we were dead in trespasses and sins. And that uh, was the bad news that we saw from verses 1 to 3 of Ephesians chapter 2. But we didn't stay there. We ended on two of the most beautiful words in all of Scripture. Remember what they were? But God, very good, guys. But God. See, general, dead things generally stay dead. But that is not true when God is involved. Praise God. For that. So look with me starting in verse 4, and we are going to read about the good news. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And God raised us up with him and seated us with him, talking about Christ, in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Why? So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Yes, church, the bad news is really bad, but the good news (laughs) is really good. Amen? The good news is good indeed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, I feel such an inadequacy this morning to be able to accurately portray the glories that are true for us in Christ Jesus. It is too deep and too much for words alone. And yes, you say in your word that these things are not able to be understood by the natural mind. Even the smartest among us cannot fathom the truth of the gospel. Yet you say these things are spiritually discerned, which means even a child can understand these things with the Spirit. And so, God, I pray that it is not my words um, that are heard this morning, but truly by the Spirit you would take this imperfect vehicle of preaching and, uh, and use it to change our hearts 
and minds because this is only imperfect uh, in, uh, in man's opinion, God, but um, this is how you by your spirit have called us to do it. Read the word and preach it. So God, help me as I attempt to do that this morning and may we truly see that the good news is really good. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Yeah, the good news is really good. And uh, we have a lot of good news to dive into this morning. Normally at this time, I would kind of have a little introduction, maybe a little story or analogy or something, but we don't have time for that this morning, so we're going to jump right in. And we got to see that the good news is so good, and it's in this passage, which we've read now twice this morning, we see the good news in three layers. We see the good news of the character of God. So again, remember our state Apart from Christ, we were dead in trespasses and sins, and not only that, we were following the course of the world, we were following the devil, and in our flesh, we were perfectly happy in that state. We needed a rescuer, and now after these two beautiful words, but God, we see that the good news comes in three layers. It is, first of all, the character of God, who God is, his nature is good news to us. And secondly, the actions of God, what God has done in saving us is very good news to us. And then the third thing we see is the plan of God. The reason that God has done all this is very good news to us. And so this morning, we're first going to look at the good news of God's character, the good news of God's character. See, you haven't just been saved by God. You've been saved by a merciful and loving God. Why is that so important? Why does Paul lead with God's being rich in mercy and his great love? Why does it matter? If I'm saved, why does it matter if I'm saved by a merciful and loving God or a God who is indifferent to me? If the, if the final result is my salvation, why does God's character matter so much? Well, the reason is because it is God's character and God's character alone as a merciful and loving God that drives him to save us. So imagine that you are stranded on the side of the road and you need help. You can't, uh, you're, you're stuck. You need help. You need someone to come help you. There's two things that you can hope for. You can hope that you can try to entice someone to come save, help you, right? You, maybe you have a $100 bill in your wallet and you're holding up on the side of the road like, hey, does anyone want to come save me? Um, or you can hope for uh, the kind of person who just wants to help you because that is who they are. And the same is true with our spiritual salvation. Those are the two options. Either God is the kind of God who innately, because of his character, desires to save you, or he is the kind of God that you must convince or entice that you are worthy of saving. Does that make sense? When I was in college, I was working, uh, was, we did a um, spring break trip up to Dearborn, Michigan, and we were working with a Muslim population there. If you've ever been to Dearborn or know anything about Dearborn, it's, it's, it's kind of trippy. It's like going to a different country. Like all the signs are in a different language. You see uh, Muslim women walking down the street in full hijab, and you do not feel like you're in the United States anymore. And so we were working with a Muslim ministry there. It was a ministry that teaches English, and uh, I got to know a guy 
uh, there pretty well that week. And, and towards the end of the week, we got into some deep conversations about kind of how we view God. And I was asking him, uh, like, what, how are you saved? Like, how do you know you're going to go to heaven? And so he was telling me about how uh, in Islam, uh, you have uh, at the end of your life, all God, Allah, what, uh, means God in Arabic, weighs all your good deeds on one side of the celestial scale and all the bad things you've done on the other side of the scale. And as long as the scale is tipping toward your good deeds, even just a little bit, even just by one, uh, that means that you... Uh, get to experience eternal paradise. But if the scale is tipping the other way, even just by one, then you uh, will go to the Muslim conception of what hell is. And, um, and as a side note, Ramadan is coming up here in, I think, a couple weeks. And at different times in the Muslim faith, like Ramadan, you get kind of like, I don't know, bonus points, essentially, for like if you do good deeds and fast during Ramadan, you get a lot more points versus just... So that's why like these... Things are a big deal in the Muslim faith. But the, I had two questions for him. The first question was, like, how do you know, like, where you stand? How do you know what the score is? How do you know how many good deeds you need to outweigh your bad deeds? And he said, there's no way to know until you die. And that is heartbreaking. And then the second question I asked him was just, like, I was just trying to explain, like, in my faith, like, the reason I know I, I don't have to worry or wonder about what happens to me when I die is because of God's love and his mercy. Is there any, like, concept of, like, God's love and having mercy for you? And he, could, he couldn't really answer that question. And uh, so this week, I, I, I was reminded of that and looking at the love and mercy of God in, in this passage. And so I thought, I should probably, like, look it up and see. I don't want to just, you know, maybe he didn't quite understand. I don't want to say something that's not true. And so I looked it up. I just Googled, you know, what is a, the Muslim perspective of God's love and mercy? And this is what uh, a Muslim, uh, it's called an imam, which is like a, a, how we think of a pastor. But this is what he said. He, he was trying to respond to criticisms that God, that their God is not a God of love and mercy. And this is what he said, he said, God has a special mercy and love for those who love him too and follow his commands. Do you see, think about that. What does the Bible tell us about God's love and why we can love God? First John 4 says what? We love because he first loved us. See how this is the opposite. God will love you if you first love him and follow his commands. And the problem with that, as you know, is um, we cannot love God if he does not first love us. Pastor Mike, why are you telling us this? Like, we're not Muslim. None of us are tempted to pray to Mecca five times a day or whatever. Like, why are you telling us all this? First of all, I mean, just as a reminder of what we're called to do, there are currently 1.8 billion Muslims on the planet, and uh, they need the gospel because they are lost. And you can't minister the gospel to a Muslim person if you don't, like, you need to first have a little bit of an understanding of why it is such good news. And what we've just seen is exactly why it is such good news. But B, we need to understand how important it is that God is rich in 
mercy. Because let's say God was like the Muslim God and his love only went out to those who love him and keep his commandments. What does verses 1 to 3 of this passage tell us about how we're doing with loving God and keeping his commandments? Uh, Not good. We were dead in our sin, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. And so if we go back to that original analogy of saying you're stuck on the side of the road, you can either try to entice somebody to to make them see that it's worth it to come save you, or you can just hope that somebody uh, who just innately desires to come save you will come and save you. Like, here comes the God of the universe up on you while you are dead in your sin, following the prince of the power of the air, following the course of this world. So he's got the power to save you, but the question is, why would he? Why would God save you? How would you entice God to think that it's worth it while you're dead in your sin? God, I'll Venmo you. I'm I'm good for it. Well, I've got everything in the world, in the universe is already mine. God, I'll clean up my act. I promise I'll get it together. No, you won't. You are dead in your sin. You decidedly won't get it together. What would you give to God that he doesn't already have that would make him say, it's worth it for me to sacrifice my only son? Nothing. If God does choose to save you, Let me start over. If God does choose to save you, it will not be because there is something in your character that compels him to do so. It will be because there is something in his character that compels him to do so. I say that again. If God saves you, it is not because there's something in you that is worth saving that he needs, that he doesn't already have. It is because there's something in him that compels him to save you. And now you can see why this is such good news. Because God is rich in mercy and loves us with a great love. Romans 5, 6 through 8. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Not because we love him and keep him, his commandments, as God, should, uh, God compelled to give us his love. Christ died for us while we were yet sinners. So I don't think there's many people in here who are tempted to follow Islam per se. I do think there are many people, many of us, who struggle with this idea of thinking that somehow you can clean up your act enough to convince God to love you. The idea that says, I'll obey God's commandments and then he'll love me is something that sinks its tentacles deep in our core. Why is that? Like, why do we struggle so much to get through our heads that this is how God loves us? Well, I think it's because of the fallen way in which we love other people. 
Because to me, somebody's got to earn my love, right? And if somebody keeps hurting me, my natural flesh is going to be done with them, right? And so naturally, we make people work to earn our love. And so we think subconsciously, well, that must be how it works with God as well. But God's love is another level than our love. We don't love unconditionally very well. But God's love is not like our sinful love. He is rich in mercy. He's rich in it, like Andy said. That, that, is, uh, that is unthinkable. It just loaded, I think, is the Greek definition of rich in mercy. He's got a lot of it. It is unending, his mercy. And he has a great love for you. Actually, look at verse 4 again. I love this. But God... Being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Now, this is one of those things in studying Paul. There's so many little phrases in here that we just skip right over. But if you force yourself to think, how would this change if that phrase wasn't there? It helps us understand it more. See, Paul doesn't just say God being rich in mercy because of his great love. That would make sense. But he takes it one step further, doesn't he? His great love with which he loved us. This is not just a theoretical capacity to love. He pointed that capacity to love at you. I uh, googled this week how many, there's a lot of googling that goes on when you're a pastor, by the way. I, I was looking up how many gallons can a fire pump put out, and I got some conflicting information, anywhere from like 250 to 5,000 gallons per minute is what I found. Anyone that knows that, maybe you want to tell me right now what the answer is. Okay, so it's, we'll say, say 1,000 gallons per minute then, and none of us know because uh, nobody just told me the answer, so we'll just pretend it's that. And uh, I mean, if you're at a, on a tour of the fire station, they say, this hose can point out, pour, pour out 5,000 gallons a minute, 1,000 gallons a minute. You say, wow, that's really something. You, you understand that mentally. That's a different experience than being at the fire station and the fire hose is pointed directly at you because now you are experiencing what it feels like to have a thousand gallons a minute knock you over. And this is what Paul's saying. God has a great love with which he loved us. He used it on us and we've experienced that love. God doesn't just have the capacity to love greatly. He loves you greatly. Oh, praise the Lord. We need to understand this because we need, we're about to talk about what God has done for us, but we can't understand what he's done for us if we don't first understand why he did it. You can't understand your salvation if you don't understand why God saved you. And it wasn't because you're so amazing. It wasn't because you promised that you would dedicate your life to God. It wasn't because you had a single thing to offer God that he didn't already have. It was because God in his character is rich in mercy and full of a great love that he's chosen to point at you with a full force. The good news is really good. 
God's character is what compels him to save you and praise God because if it wasn't for his character, we would not have convinced him to save us otherwise. So God's character is good news, but so are his actions, what he did for you. Look at verse 5. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Three things that God did for us while we were dead with Christ. First, God gave you a new life. God gave you new life. Earlier I was uh, saying or praying, I don't remember that, these things are impossible to communicate with human language. And we see hints of that in the writing of Paul because Paul uh, is just making up words left and right in this passage. And what he's doing is he's, the word in Greek with is soon, S-U-N, and he's taking soon and putting it together with these verbs that God has done and making a whole new word that isn't found anywhere else in any of classical literature. Like these are words that are unique to Paul and unique to this passage. So what God has done is made us alive with Christ. Made us alive was already a word, but God hasn't just made us alive. He is with Christ. Christ made us alive. You see what we're saying there. So what he's saying is that what happened to us spiritually with Christ made us alive matches what happened to Jesus physically. Jesus was dead physically. We were dead spiritually in our transgressions and sins. God made Jesus alive physically, and with him, God made us alive spiritually. But these things don't happen without that little three-letter word attached to what God has done. It's not just God made us alive, it's God made us alive with Christ, which is why we just read that verse in worship in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 17, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Our spiritual resurrection is not theoretical. It is tied to God's physical resurrection of Jesus. If Jesus was not physically, literally, we hear that word too often in our culture, but we mean it this time, literally raised from the dead, then anything, everything we're doing this morning would be worthless, and we would still be stuck in sin. And this is why Easter is such a big deal. It's not just about the eggs. It's not just about dressing up nice so mom can get a picture of us before we go eat ham or whatever. It's about celebrating the literal, physical resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, not just as a cool historical fact, but as the very thing that our resurrection, both spiritual now and physical in the future, is tied to in a way that if you take away one, the other is no more. If Jesus didn't walk out of that tomb, neither would we. Another way to put it. Praise God. 
Just as God raised Jesus from the dead, he made you spiritually alive with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Something that Paul says here, and then he picks up further in verse 8. We're going to talk about that more next week when we tackle verse 8. But it is by grace that you have been saved. So God gave you new life, and then God gave you a new life. Are you stuttering, Pastor Mike? It seems like we just said that. No, this is, there's a little other word in there. God gave you new life, and God gave you a new life. So God, verse 5, made us alive together with Christ. Verse 6, raised us up with Christ. Raised us up with Christ. So there's another word that Paul just invents by smashing the word with together. So he with-raised us with Christ. And I spent way too long this week trying to figure out the difference between God making us alive with Christ and God raising us up with Christ. I couldn't figure it out. In fact, at like 10 o'clock at night on Friday night, I texted Bill Farley because I thought he had a book that might help me. I was like, can you send me a picture of that page? And, uh, and I, so I still didn't, that still didn't help, but uh, I, it took a long time. But I think there's a very important nuance here that we need to see, that we have both new life and a new life. And here's, I think, the difference. When Paul says that God made you alive, he's talking about the act of raising you out of your spiritual deadness, so you are no longer spiritually dead. But when he talks about raising you up with Christ, he's talking about the ability that you have by the Spirit to live a new life. And I think the clearest verse that shows us this is Colossians 3, 1 and 2. If then you have been raised with Christ, so that's Paul using that exact same word that he is here in Ephesians 2. If you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. So if you've been raised with Christ, you can live like it. That's what Paul's saying in Colossians 3. And so I think we can see this in verse 6 as saying, you don't just have new life like a second chance. You have new life, you've been raised, and you have a new life. You have now a new way to live. This is a little confusing, so let me put it one more way. If all Jesus did at the cross was reset my sins back to zero and give me another chance, what do you think is going to happen? I fail immediately, once again. The gospel wouldn't be good news to me. What Jesus did at the cross was raise you from the dead and raise you to new life in Christ by the Spirit of God. That now lives in you. So praise God that in the riches of his mercy, he doesn't just bring me back to life to fail again and then experience the punishment for my sins yet again. He makes me alive by grace and then raises me up to new life in Jesus. Church, I struggled with this for years in my Christian walk. I could get my mind around God forgiving my past sins, but it felt like it was up to me not to screw up once he saved me. 
And when I did screw up, I just felt like God was so disappointed in me. Anyone relate to that? Oh, man. We say, in Christ, you are a saint. You are a saint. So you can't say, I'm a sinner anymore. You can say, I sin, because we do sin. But your life is not characterized by your sin. Your life is characterized by grace. And what God is doing now in your heart and in your life, again, we talked about this last week, he's sanctifying you. He's beginning this process of disciplining you, which means moving you towards the goal of Christ Jesus in everything. So in the fact that you are raised with Christ, even while we yet sin, God is working out in your heart sanctification, and you are being made holy. And so we just want to renounce this idea that God forgave my past sins, but now he looks at me, what, he's, what, what my life's been since he saved me, and he is just so disappointed in me. Now, God hates your sin, and he wants it gone because he loves you. So God is not, does not hate you because of your sin. He hates your sin. And now in Christ, he's brought you to new life. He's reanimated you, and he's given you the power in the spirit to walk in the newness of life. If you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. This is a very, this is nuanced. It's hard to understand sometimes. But it's so important. When we remember the gospel, I remember, okay, who am I? What is true of me? When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, what do I do? Upward I look and see him there who did what? Made an end to all my sin. But I keep sinning. He made an end to it all. But I'm going to sin tomorrow. He made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. Because God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Amen. So God gave you new life, and God has given you a new life to be free of guilt, to be free of shame, to when we sin, to be free to repent, to confess our sin, and turn from it and say, God, help me. But I know you still love me, and you're working in me this power that I can't even comprehend to make me more like Jesus. Praise God. Amen. He gave you new life. He gave you a new life. And then he gave you a new seat. There we go. Thank you. We're working this out. He gave you a new seat. He, look at it, end of verse 6, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. This is absolutely stunning because it makes zero sense that this would be in the past tense. It makes all the sense in the world to me 
to say that God made me alive. Yep, I understand that spiritually. He made me alive and raised me up with Christ, gave me a new life, and someday will seat me with Christ in the heavenly places. That's where I'm going. That's not what Paul says. He says he seated us with him in the heavenly places. That's past tense. That means you're there now. You are currently seated with Christ in the heavenly places, even as you sit in these chairs in Rock Prairie Church in building in uh, Tipton, Indiana. That's crazy. That's where our snow globe analogy kind of almost starts to fall short a little bit. Because what we see here is that you're living in both the natural world and this supernatural world, for lack of better terms, at the same time, the spiritual world. So it's not just that we're living here and there's another world out there. It's that I'm in both worlds at the same time. You are a cross-dimensional being. Oh, you're far out, Pastor Mike. This is getting a little trippy. It's true. <laughs> you are living in multiple dimensions at the same time. You are in, with Jesus in the heavens right now spiritually, even though physically you are right here. Because of Jesus, because you're in Christ, you have been seated with Christ now. And if you can understand that any more than I can, please come up to me and explain it to me after the service. Because these things are like just almost impossible for us to comprehend. But at least what it teaches us, again, is what we've been talking about. We talked about it in our Heaven series. We cannot think of following Jesus as I just got to make it through this world to get to the good one. Somehow that world has crashed into this world in Christ. It's begun, and one day he's going to return, and heaven and earth will become one. But until that day, we recognize I am here in this physical world now, and I'm also seated in the heavenly places with Christ. How, how do we even like begin to apply that to our daily lives? I, I don't even really know. I guess the next time you're having a hard day, you can remind yourself, hey, I am actually in the heavenly places with Jesus right now, which means there's a reason that I'm going through this. And we look to God's word and we say, oh, he's perfecting me. He's using this trial to transform me. And so even though it's hard right now, I can see both the difficult aspect of it as being a part of this physical world and the transformational aspect of it because I know that I am being shaped for another. Amen? So that's how we can apply that. Also, I guess if your uh, spouse is talking to you this week and you're not really paying attention and they call you out on it, just say, sorry, I was, in the, I was seated in the heavenly places with Christ Jesus. Just kidding. That is terrible marriage advice. Don't, uh, don't do that. Who God is in his mercy and love, his character is very good news. And what he did in making you alive and raising you up and seating you at the right hand of, of Jesus in the heavenly places is good news as well. But there's one more aspect that Paul talks about, which is the good news of God's future plan. So as we close, we're going to look at this. Verse 7. Why did God do all this? We see. So that in the coming ages... He might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us 
in Christ Jesus. So why did God save us? To put his grace and kindness on display in the age to come. His grace and kindness that are immeasurable. I mean that one day when God raises us up once and for all, all the saints that have, he has brought from death to life and he clothes them with the resurrection body and we all gather around the throne and worship the lamb that the riches of his grace and kindness will be on full display because we will say, if not for Jesus, not a one of us would be here. So what does that mean for you right now? Everything. You were saved to bring glory to God. You've been brought to life. You've been raised up and seated with Christ so that everything in about you would point to him. And John Stott says in his Ephesians commentary, he tells of a professor at Cambridge or Oxford or somewhere who's being uh, honored in his retirement. And what they had done was they had, had commissioned a portrait painted of him, and it was a stunning portrait. And so when the professor got up to speak at this little gathering they were having for him and the unveiling of the portrait, the professor said, in 50 years, people are going to look at that, and they're not going to ask, who was that man? They're going to ask, who painted that portrait? The portrait was so stunning. And church, that is the picture of how we live our lives right now. Oh, I want to get to the end of my life, whenever that is. People look at my life and say, what a great Savior he must have had. What a great Savior God must be. And do you want that as well? And there's so many things we can strive for, church. There's so many uh, different things that the world says makes us successful. There's so many different things that the enemy wants to distract us with. There are so many different things that our flesh just wants to hang on to because it feels good in the moment. But what we need to strive for, what we need to put everything in our lives toward is this goal of saying, I want my life to display in a small way, the immeasurable riches of God's grace and kindness toward me. And I want our church to be a church that is full of people, whether it's 20 people or 1,000 people, of people who are displaying the glory of God in their lives and the riches of, kind, of God's kindness so that people can look at you and say, you're not that special, <laughs> But God has done a remarkable work in your life, and it's undeniable. He must be someone I want to get to know. So church, may we live our lives recognizing how dead we were in our sins and our trespasses understanding the greatness of what God has done for us in Christ Jesus, with Christ, so that our lives, for the rest of our lives, however many days he gives us, we will walk in a way, in a manner that brings glory to the God who saved us. Amen? Is he worth living for? Amen. Let's pray. God. Christ alone is our hope in life and death. So we sing hallelujah. Our hope springs eternal. 
God, now and ever, may we confess that Christ, our hope, is our hope in life and death. God, if there's anyone here who does not know the riches of, the, of your kindness and your grace and mercy, I pray that today would be the day that they repent of their sin and choose to follow Jesus. And for the rest of us, God, too often we get tied up in the things of the world. So God, may those things grow strangely dim in the light of your glory and grace. We pray in Jesus' precious name, amen.